Take your Bibles and go to 2 Samuel 21 this morning. 2 Samuel 21. I want to echo the encouragement you were given at the beginning of the service to join us for sing praise and prayer. This is a unique time for us on a Sunday evening as we gather around God's word. We look at it together. Um, we explore it together and then we praise God um, in song and in testimony. So I'd encourage you to join us um, in that time this evening. How do you measure the greatness of a leader? What things come to your mind? Is it by what he or she accomplishes? Is greatness measured by how those under his or her leadership succeed or fail? What they produce? What is the measuring stick? What should it be? What comes to your mind when you think of King Saul? Maybe you remember how he was described as taller than most in Israel. He looked like a king should look. Maybe you remember his consulting with the witch of Endor in his very sad final moments. What comes to your mind when you think of King David? That's a little more complex, isn't it? Perhaps you remember his incredible victory over Goliath or maybe his terrible sin with Bathsheba. Perhaps a favorite psalm comes to mind, or you remember that he's the man after God's own heart or God's own choosing. Perhaps one matter we should include in our measurement of greatness is how one responds to his failures. In the last chapters of 2 Samuel, that's the question we're encouraged to consider. What is God looking for in a leader? We've come now to the final four chapters of 2 Samuel. I want you to see, um, by way of illustration on the screen, how these chapters are organized. They're different than the way uh, the rest of the book is organized. That book was telling the story of David's reign. Now we've come to this summary. And it's not organized chronologically, it's organized thematically. We'll see here at the beginning, and then at the end of this epilogue, God's judgment on the sins of his kings. We have two shorter accounts of David's mighty men. And then in the middle, this is highlighting the point, is God's promise to Israel through his king. The editor of this portion of God's word is presenting the two kings that we've seen through the combined books of Samuel and examines them one final time by way of contrast in this clearly organized epilogue. We do not find one king who is sinful and one king who is sinless. That's not what we'll see. Rather, we see one king who refused to turn from his sin when confronted and was thus a failure in the eyes of God and brought calamity to his people. He's contrasted with the second king who when he was confronted with his sin turned back to God in repentance and was restored. It seems at least in part the most defining aspect of these men's lives is how they responded to the confrontation of their sin. In spite of his failures, David then remained a person who recognized Yahweh as the sovereign ruler over himself and the nation. The one to whom all worship and all honor is due. This, this 
is what made David the man after God's own choosing. So how will you be remembered? What's the measure of your success in this life? Will your sins and mistakes be what defines your life? Or will repentance and restoration and humility and perseverance define you instead? This serves us as one of the most important lessons from the study. That's why I believe the narrator concludes this way. There are no perfect sinless leaders. There are no perfect sinless people. What we see is God is looking for those who will humble themselves before him. Who will bow before the true king of God's people. Who will obey his word. These are those who seek to obey God with their whole hearts and turn back to him in repentance when they fail. This is really the story of the Christian life, isn't it? It's one of struggle. Their successes and their failures. But who is truly the king in our lives? The epilogue in our text today confronts us with the question, how will you deal with sin in your life when God reveals it to you? Will you harden your heart and stubbornly defend self? Or will you turn to him again in humble repentance? Will you respond to the conviction of God's spirit like Saul or like David? So let's begin looking at this epilogue. We'll start by looking at verses 1 through 14. 2 Samuel 21 verse 1, this is the word of our God to his people. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. He's saying there is right guilt and blame on Saul. Verse 2, so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, of the Canaanites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement? That's the key word of this text. How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And David said, what do you say I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mehalathite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. 
Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all the king commanded And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Let's ask for his help to consider what he would teach us from a very challenging text this morning. Father, we come to you again asking for your grace, for your help, for your wisdom, for enlightenment to understand your word. We want to submit to you and yet very many times in your word we don't understand exactly what it is you're doing or how what happens is right. And yet we want to start from a place of humble submission, recognizing that you always and only do right. So may we struggle towards you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a challenging text, as you saw as we read. Perhaps the most difficult in this book in many ways. And yet we can be certain that God has something here to teach us. When we come to a passage that is a challenge for us to understand, by way of reminder, by way of conviction, we have to start with the foundational assumption that God always acts rightly. We may not be able to explain all the ways that he's working or why he's doing what he's doing. But we start with that foundation. We never approach the Bible expecting God to answer to us and saying in our modern sensibilities we know better what justice is and God needs to tell us why this doesn't seem to meet that standard. Instead we're to do our best to understand what is being revealed about him and simply accept we don't always understand everything about his ways. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God tells us, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We must always then choose humility and submission before the word. We're also to believe that these scriptures are for our benefit. Even when we're left with questions that are unanswered in this life. Romans 15.4 says, everything that was written in the past, that's this text this morning, was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So, what then does our text teach us this morning? We'll see the failures of Saul require God's king to make an atonement for sin to end the curse of God's just judgment. We'll examine our text considering four points this morning. First, the mercy of revelation. In verse 1, we're told of a lengthy three-year famine. It went on year after year. 
Again, we don't know when this famine occurred during the reign of David. This section is not chronological. It's not following what we read in verse, in chapter 20 rather. What we do know is that for three years, four, food was in very short supply. People were hungry. Harvests failed. They were suffering. A natural disaster. Now, shorter droughts in a region of a world like Israel would not have been uncommon. But the length of this one drives David to seek an answer from the God of all creation. What exactly is happening? David went before his king, seeking an audience with the one who controls all things. I think there's two lessons in this here for us. We're to be regularly seeking God in prayer. We're to be regularly seeking him through the means he provides to us. This is a privilege that he provides that we too often neglect. We try to figure out life through our own senses, our own abilities, our own reckoning. But here David models, we are to turn and seek his face. David doesn't understand what's happening and he seeks answers from God. That's to be our response then as well. We're to seek him through a combination of prayer, the study of his word, and his people as we do those two things together. Where we turn in moments of crisis and need reveals much about our true beliefs about God. See, we say as Christians, many of us have grown up in Christian circles, we say, I trust God. But in moments like this, When we fail to utilize these ordinary tools of grace, we reveal the truth about what we truly are resting in. We also recognize that David doesn't jump to a conclusion here, and that's instructive as well. He doesn't automatically assume that he knows what God is doing and why. He doesn't try to fill in the blanks theologically. Be wary of that person who tells you they know that it's always God's Judgment, excuse me, that brings hardship into your life or into the life of a nation. God is often accomplishing more than one thing at a time as he works in this world. And we're often not told expressly what he's doing. That doesn't mean that's not one of the possibilities. Certainly is. That's what's happening here. But that's not always the case. Remember from the story of Job that part of the reason God condemns Job's friends is because they assume that they know what God is doing and why. And they declare what God is doing. They do so wrongly. Suffering does not always mean that someone has sinned. Be careful that you don't paint a picture of God in your mind that he's always this angry policeman or judge just waiting to clobber you. He's a father who only ever allows hardships into our lives to discipline us, to bring us closer to him. So certainly there may be times when we suffer for sin, but be careful how you represent God. Suffering does not always mean someone sinned. That was true for Job. It's true for the man born blind in the New Testament. It's true of Jesus What we're to learn instead is that it is right for us to trust God. It is right for us to trust his reasons, even when we don't understand those reasons. 
The right conclusion is that we're to seek God rather than trying to conclude we know what he's up to. As we continue in our text, the Lord answers David's request. There's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. We read of that covenant in our scripture reading this morning. Saul had broken a covenant that Israel had made with these people. He did what Israel promised before God they would not do. That's the key point. The Gibeonites say that he consumed us. Secondly, planned to destroy us. Thirdly, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. This is all-out genocide. Saul is doing to the Gibeonites, a people with whom Israel has a covenant, what God had commanded him to do to the Amalekites. This curse teaches us that God's justice does not operate on our timetable. His judgment doesn't work according to our watches. It's unforgetting. It's unrelenting. Commentator Gordon Ketty writes, People may forget our past sin, but God never forgets. Because he will, he must perfectly vindicate his law and those who've been wronged. From the Lord's perspective, nothing merely just blows over. There's no statute of limitations with the justice of God. He alone has the right and knows the time to choose retribution. Whether immediately, some years later, or only at the final judgment when all unforgiven sin is punished. Just because God does not judge us immediately for some hidden sin should never encourage us or settle us into this false sense of ease that we can continue sinning and covering it up. This passage vehemently urges us to repent of all known sin and find cleansing by his grace. And repent today. Repent today. Now God's punishment here also shows us the importance of covenant commitments. One author explains, swearing an oath in Yahweh's name and violating it discredits Yahweh's reputation. It says that his name cannot be depended upon. His name guarantees nothing. It is taking his name in vain. In the Old Testament, to swear an oath in God's name means that the parties involved are asking the Lord to bring the curses of that covenant upon them if they feel, fail to keep their promises. So the issue in chapter 21 is not revenge. It's justice for the breaking of a covenant promise. Lord's name had been desecrated and therefore there was a just curse on Saul's descendants that affected all the people of Israel. This teaches us again, God expects you to keep your promises. He's the witness and judge of them all. Here's one area where God's people must apply this truth. No matter how the world around us acts, we cannot ignore minimize or despise our marriage covenants because we're not happy or feeling fulfilled or feeling respected. You made a covenant before God and he intends you to keep it. He intends you to honor it, honor your word, even when your partner sins against you in word and in deed. He's helping you see this isn't just a horizontal, person-to-person covenant. 
you made it before the very God of heaven. Honor your covenant for his sake because he expects you to keep your promises. Now, at this point, it may be helpful to fill in a few of the details about the Gibeonites. Who are they? Why had Israel made this covenant with them? Our scripture reading answered this question to a degree. They're an indigenous people within Canaan. They're called Amorites, just Canaanites. They had tricked Joshua and the people of Israel into making this covenant. Israel had done so foolishly, and yet, and yet, that covenant was binding. The treaty they made had been sworn in the name of Jehovah. Now we said this first point is the mercy of revelation. Where do we see mercy in what is happening? There's mercy in that God answers. He doesn't keep David in the dark, but reveals the reason for the famine, for the curse, for the consequence. When David seeks him, he tells him what is wrong. God is merciful to reveal to us our sin. He's merciful to reveal to us our guilt, to bring conviction when we've walked from him. He's pursuing the relationship. He's pursuing restoration through conviction. He's bringing to us, he's providing the solution. How should David deal with this breach of the covenant? How will God's king deal with God's curse on his people for sin? We see secondly the horror of atonement. David asked the Gibeonites what should be done. He asked, how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord, God's people? They reveal that atonement cannot be made by the exchange of gold or silver. Atonement, we see in the Old Testament, is made through the shedding of blood. Atonement had to be made from the house of the man who committed the offense. It seems evident that thousands of Gibeonites had died at Saul's hand. The decision is made then that for atonement to be accomplished, seven of Saul's closest descendants will have to die. And notice what's challenging through this passage is that all of this is said to be done before the face of God. How does that work? The Gibeonites use the phrase before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. I think at the very least, this is saying God's name is at stake. The language here demonstrates this is not an act of vengeance, but of legal precedence. The request was consistent with the provisions of the law for dealing with murder. In Numbers 35, 33, and 34, God says, Do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land. And atonement cannot be made for the land on which the blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. You see what he's saying? This isn't just about capital punishment. This is about God's reputation among God's people. Because God dwelt with his people, the land of Israel was to be seen and thought of as holy ground. When Saul broke that covenant made with the Gibeonites, he defiled God's name. So David agrees to this sentence It's his responsibility to fulfill the terms. 
And yet right in the midst of this terrible scene, we're told of David's commitment to his covenant to Jonathan. Again, David and Saul are being presented as contrasting characters. We're in the midst of a text that is telling us of Saul's broken covenant, all the while highlighting David's fulfillment of his covenant promises, even to the family of his enemy. David chooses two sons of Saul and five grandsons. They're executed in a manner that demonstrates they bear the curse of breaking the covenant. The Old Testament law forbid a criminal to be hanged and left hanging for more than a day. And it's very possible they're hanged there for weeks. They were supposed to be buried before nightfall. Leaving the bodies hanging was to dishonor them. We've heard before in Deuteronomy 21, 23, cursed is everyone who's hanged upon a tree. Matthew Henry explains they were hanged up as anathemas under a peculiar mark of God's displeasure. They were hanged up in Gibeah of Saul to show that it was for his sin that they died to expiate or cover the guilt of the house of Saul. So the challenge of this text is that it seems like innocent descendants who had nothing to do with Saul's choices, are dying for the sins of their father. This certainly doesn't seem fair, does it? Is this justice or injustice? I found no one who could answer all the questions this passage raises satisfactorily. I found no one who could answer to the horribleness of this scene. But that leads us to probably the primary application. While we can't answer all the questions, there is something this is teaching us. Atonement is horrible. Sin is costly. Redemption costs a great deal. We're to see the awfulness of sin through the awfulness of the punishment. Atonement is bloody. Pastor and Old Testament professor Dale Ralph Davis challenges us, atonement is never nice, but always gruesome. We need to see this, for we easily fall into the trap of regarding atonement as merely a doctrine, a concept, an abstraction to be explained, a bit of theology to be analyzed. From slicing the bull's throat in Leviticus 1 all the way to Calvary, God has always said atonement is nasty and repulsive. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. This is a bloody business. It's supposed to be. The scene then grows heavier still. We see thirdly the heartbreak of love. The final verses of this scene are perhaps the most difficult for us to bear. We empathize with this mother. She grieves over the death of her sons. She honors them to the best of her ability by protecting them from mutilation, from birds, from wild beasts, from the elements. Again, we don't know how long the bodies hung there. It could have been for weeks. It seems like there's seasons that are passing before the rain comes. Her grief is great and yet she does what she can to honor them in death. And we read that her sacrifice and honor leads David to show an even greater honor to Saul and Jonathan and these that are killed. 
He provides their bodies a proper state funeral in the family tomb. Does her grief over the death of her sons remind you of the future, future grief of another mother who grieves over the death of her own innocent son? Think of how Mary grieved for the truly innocent one. In verse 14, God responds to the people's plea, we're told, and the famine is ended. The question that we leave unanswered is, does he approve of all of the steps taken for this atonement? The text isn't focused on answering that question. Remember, in Old Testament narrative, the point isn't to provide us with whether or not all the actions of the characters are right. What we do see is that sin causes terrible devastation, even for those who are not part of the initial sin. Hear this word carefully. Guard your heart against sin. It is costly. It is devastating. It always affects others very, very often in ways you cannot predict. Atonement had to be made for Saul's sin and it is extremely costly to his own family. See the price of sin on those he left behind and run, run to Christ from sin this morning. Don't play with it. Lastly, we see the support of the mighty. Kind of turn the page a little bit and see this second part of the epilogue. In verses 15 through 20. Let's read these verses as well this morning. Verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants. And they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob. One of the descendants of the giants. Whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze. And who was armed with a new sword. Thought to kill David. But Abishai the son of Zeruiah. Came to his aid and attacked the Philistine. And killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And after this, there was again war with the Philistines a second time at Gob. This is the second account rather. Then Sebekai the Hushathite struck down Saph who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanah the son of Jair, Oregon, the Bethlehemite struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath a fourth time where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now again, we need to recognize, understand these are not new battles, Not working out chronologically. It's not the Philistines have risen up again. These are records, a brief honor roll of significant victories of David and his men. We're given four vignettes of incredible, even surprising victory. This first account receives the longest treatment. King David is worn out. Perhaps this is indicating he's aging. He no longer has the same stamina for battle. Or perhaps it's simply telling us he grew weary in that particular battle. 
Either way, Abishai steps in, he protects David in a moment when he should have lost his life. There's drama in this scene. This giant of a man is about to crush David and one of his men steps in to protect him. Abishai understands David's importance to God's people and God's plan and God preserves David for the sake of his people. This teaches us we need to surround ourselves with those who will faithfully support us when we're weary and worn out. This isn't the support that our world thinks we need with friends who will just pat us on the back. God provides us with just such support here in the church. We're to be this kind of a friend and pursue friends who will truly help us follow God, who will speak the truth in love to us, who will confront us when needed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We tend to seek friends who provide us with affirmation or status. Seek instead to surround yourself with those who are committed to the mission of God. Young people, find the most godly people around you and make them your friend. They will help you grow healthy and strong in walking with Christ. Allow them to speak into your life. Run with those who are running after God. Believing this passage shows David to be advancing in years, G. Campbell Morgan stated, let those who after long service find themselves waning in strength be content to abide with the people of God, still shining for them as a lamp, and this enabling them to carry on the same divine enterprises. Encourage the people of God, he's saying, such action in the last days of life is also great and high service. Whatever time God has given you, invest yourself in the growth of God's people and the advance of the gospel. Don't waste very valuable time that God has left for you. Serve. Invest in the lives of those younger than you. Have a listening ear. Have a prayerful, interceding heart. You can do that no matter what your health is like. No matter what your age If the work of the church is help others walk closer and closer with God, then nobody ages out of service. Continue to serve God. Continue to pursue the lost. We're finally given a description of three more victories over intimidating Philistine giants. And what we see is God provides victory over the enemies of God's people through his king. God prospers David. We've seen that again and again. He gives him victory wherever he went. So what are we to make of this honor roll? This seems to be out of nowhere. If we understand these chapters to be highlighting the contrast between Saul and David, then we see again Saul's failures and David's victory. Saul could not drive out the enemies of God's people. The Philistines were a constant problem. And Saul failed to push them out, even dying at their hand. But God provided David with victory after victory in the protection and promotion of God's people. He raised up mighty men around him to support and defend him. This shows us David's not invincible. He's a vulnerable, dependent man. Yet God provides his king with protection and guidance and support. So what are we to do with a text like this? Well, first, how should this passage shape your view of sin? We rarely understand the dangers our sins present in the moment of temptation. We're tricked. 
We're told how pleasant they will be, and they are for a moment. But we don't think of the consequences. And that's why passages like this are here for us. God in his mercy causes his spirit to bring conviction of sin to our minds. Welcome that. Thank God for that. And respond without delay. This passage also calls for us to see sin from God's perspective. The terrible price required for atonement reveals to us the severity of the offense. Don't think you can categorize it by how it's affecting other people, what you perceive it to be. There is a bloody cost for sin. Let the punishment for sin teach you of its evil. Look at it from God's perspective. Let that horrible payment show you its offensiveness, its heinousness. What did God have to give to atone for your sin? What did it cost him? That should tell you something about how he sees it. Whose life did it cost? This text then leads us to worship the God who provides full atonement and victory through Christ our King. It calls us to worship because it shows us the great severity of our sin on one hand and the gory cost of atonement that God was willing to give. It leads us to worship because it points forward to God's own sacrifice in order to atone for sin once for all. Peter tells us, you were ransomed. Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I cannot look at the devastation of this text and not think of the gospel of atonement made by Jesus Christ. The innocent one suffering for sin. Bearing my curse. Pastor Rick Phillips shares this story. An Illinois farmer who had seven children faced obligatory military service in the Union Army during the Civil War. As that day neared when he had to put on the uniform, he worried over who would feed his children and how his family would survive after he was enlisted. On the appointed morning, not only the military officials, but also the teenage son of a neighbor arrived at his farm. The young man had realized the need of his neighbor and came to offer himself to go to war in the farmer's place. Years later, that farmer was seen stooping over a tombstone in the military cemetery outside of Nashville, Tennessee. An onlooker approached him and asked what he was doing and especially inquired what he had written on the grave marker. That farmer turned his face, revealing the tears that were streaming down, and he replied, I have written the words, he died for me. Do you see the devastating consequences of sin? Your sin. My sin. Sin is so heinous, there must be an eternal, an eternally valuable blood atonement made. God has provided one through his son, Jesus Christ, his final king. Do you see God's atoning provision for your sin? Unbeliever, if you will turn to this Christ from your sin, God will forgive you of everything you've done, past, present, and future, and call you into his service. 
at the Christ, at the cross rather, God did not offer up the sons of others. He offered up his own innocent son to make full atonement. By his wounds, we are healed. So don't lose sight of the horrors of that bloody cross. Like these men, he was hanging on a cross, becoming a curse for us, cursed by his own father, the innocent one. The father was pleased to crush him. For our sakes, this does not make sense. This is not fair, but it is the gospel. His mother agonized over the suffering of her innocent son. His innocence was absolute, and yet he was made sin for us. So see how much he loves you and bow in worship. Let's pray. Our God, we rejoice that you provided the atonement required to propitiate your own wrath toward our sin. It was our curse that the sinless, innocent Son of God suffered. This is not fair. He did not deserve that death. His mother did not earn that grief. And yet, he willingly gave it. Father, may that sacrifice again humble us into the dirt. We are sinners. Our sin and God's wrath, his curse for our sin deserves eternal punishment. Help us not to foolishly evaluate our sins based on how we think they affect others. Teach us to see them through the lens of the gospel. Every evil word, every evil thought, every proud look, every idle word of gossip is worthy of the death of your own son because it is cosmic treason against a good and gracious king. So Father, humble us, but help us also to see how much you love us. That you did not hesitate to give up your son, to appoint him as the appeasement of your wrath. That you exhausted it all in that moment on the cross in him. You poured out all of it so that we would only be welcomed into your kingdom as your sons, as a Mephibosheth. We don't deserve it and we marvel at your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and your love. Thank you for this illustration that redemption is costly. Help us to remember it. Help us to remember it this week and worship and love and live for our King. In his name we pray, amen.